Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now, here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Today, my guest is Mandy Vaughn, who is the CEO and founder of GXO Incorporated, which she founded in 2021 to accelerate the pace of change across the space industry. It has the goal of supporting new commercial space ventures quickly to navigate the startup environment and start delivering capabilities and missions that matter for commercial and government customers. Mandy serves on the National Space Council's User Advisory Group, which was reinstituted in 2018, and she's helped there to streamline the coordination and cooperation across the entire U.S. space enterprise. Prior to forming uh, GXO, she was previously the president and CEO of Vox Space. Mandy joined Virgin Orbit, Vox's parent company, in 2015, and she supported the business developer of Launcher One, which was very recently successful and served as the mission manager for customers, including OneWeb, NASA. And prior to joining Virgin Orbit, Mandy was the General Dynamics Mission Systems Space and Intelligence Systems Directorate, where she was responsible for space control and space protection and investment portfolios, successfully integrating development programs for the next generation space-based GPS receivers. And prior to General Dynamics, she was a developmental engineer and program manager in the Air Force and a director with Kinsey Technical Services, where she primarily supported the Space Superiority Systems Directorate at Los Angeles Air Force Base and earlier the ICBM development at Hill Air Force Base. She was the lead and chief engineer of the Space-Based Surveillance Program and has supported multiple space situational awareness and command and control programs, including some work for NRO AS&T and the DIA Directorate of Science and Technology. Welcome, Mandy. Awesome. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So today, what do you describe as what you do in your role in the space ecosystem? Sure. So I think um, I'm just thrilled to have started GXO just earlier this year. And so I really see my and our role in the ecosystem of, as you said, trying to accelerate the pace of change with the the whole very vibrant commercial space sector and how can these new and innovative companies le- quickly leverage what they're doing to increase our footprint uh, kind of across all of the elements of the national security community. So it's easy to talk about dual use or uh, the national security customer taking advantage of commercial entrepreneurship and innovation, but the implementation is a little bit tougher. So I've, I formed GXO to try to jump into the middle of that and, and see how can we improve that situation on both sides of the fence, both with advising companies and helping steer them with priorities and structure and choices, as well as working with the government customer in terms of what are their policies, choices and processes that they need to work on and implement to be able to accept what these commercial companies are offering. And, and just to pause there for a minute, I, I can't take it for granted that my listeners would know, but why is that difficult? Why? Why is this not just something simple? A company comes and has a great product and they apply and the government buys it and that's end of story. What's different about that simple mental model? 
it sounds like it should be easy. Um, no, it's it's far from simple. You know, first it's like let's just talk. It's it's difficult because what what the companies are doing is hard. Space is hard. Getting new tech out into the field in a way that's repeatable and useful and easy to operate that's hard. So then on the other side of the spectrum, what the national security customers' missions are is also hard. They need things that are very reliable, very available, trustable. So we've got a hard problem on both sides of the fence. So then kind of the underlaying foundation of even making it more harder for making this really good grammar, right, is the, the just kind of the overall culture, the culture of what is the historical culture as well as the procurement culture of making things equitable and fair and vetted uh, kind of through that whole government onboarding process is can be a cumbersome and confusing process. And the government's really big. It's not as simple as just like dialing, you know, 1-800-AIR-FORCE or 1-800-SPACE FORCE and say, hey, I have an amazing doohickey. You should look at this. What's the process? What are the centers of pressure? Who are the centers of influence? How do you navigate this? Is not a very straightforward process. So between the mission being hard, the technology being really high tech, the process not necessarily being intuitive, companies can quickly stumble, they can waste time, they can waste resources. So it really is kind of, it's it's how do you vector the company to start executing this smartly and make smart technical choices that can enable the U.S. government customer to leverage what they're doing and help educate both sides of the fence. What does the U.S. government customer need to do to understand where these companies are coming from and helping these companies understand, hey, a lot of the rules that the government customer have to follow are really important because because this is why. So helping them understand each other's values, it's not necessarily straightforward. It's kind of interesting, but the process is certainly not intuitive or simple or fast. <laughs> got it. So let's uh, let's go back to the very top. You've got just an amazing view of having been both inside and outside government and worked on the National Space Council Users Advisory Group. How do you see space as important to U.S. strategy and ambitions? Space is so fundamental across that board. And in, in, in many ways, what makes this a challenging problem is it's fundamental across the U.S. national strategy in ways that aren't necessarily obvious, which makes this whole problem tougher to solve because it's not just in your face every day. We all can appreciate more and more readily that so much of our day-to-day economy, our day-to-day connectivity is completely reliant on space or maybe, you know, mostly reliant on space, right? So there's so much that happens that keeps our day-to-day world moving and keeps us in a, in a state where we have almost ubiquitous comms and access to information. A lot of this has to deal with the infrastructure that is space. And then not to mention like all of the other illities that come from this between discoveries in, in science and in physics and in engineering and materials. It's not necessarily the old classic we talked about spinoffs of Velcro coming from the space program. It's not It's not that. It's a much more fundamental, pervasive part of our just being that I don't think is appreciated. Like if people couldn't move around, you'd be like, wait a second, I can't just go take this meeting in New York or go visit my family. Space is quickly becoming the same way, that it's just a fabric of what makes uh, on which the economy rides. 
as well as where people's information and data gathering ride. So that's kind of on the economic element, but then on the strategic and, and military side, you know, it's kind of the classic, you need the high ground, right? So through life. And, and as I say that a helicopter flies over. <laughs> so through the whole history of warfare, we had, you know, you wanted to take the hill so you could have a better viewpoint of a battlefield and then balloons and then airplanes and space has colloquially been called the, the, the ultimate high ground. And it really is. That's how you can gain access to information and data to eliminate strategic surprise. So it's pervasive and so fundamentally important kind of in all facets of life, which makes this problem important and and hard to solve because it's not necessarily something that you think about every day. Uh, I want to take us on a little tangent here. I noticed that in your bio, you've got space situational awareness space-based, space surveillance, you've got uh, space superiority. What do those terms mean? So those terms, to me, really mean understanding the environment and what's going on, who's there, why, and then even more critically, how do we operate and create norms of behavior that we all abide by. So space situational awareness, or I guess now called space domain awareness, really is just, that's the fundamental, what's going on, what's there, whether it be physical as well as man-made and you know spacecraft flying around, what's there, what are the hazards, what are their intentions? Why are they there? Who put who put it there? What is it supposed to be there? That's where you can get into not just safety, safety of flight and safety of maneuver, but safe access and understanding intent gives way to economic norms, right? So just think about the open ocean, right? So if we're moving goods between continents, we just have we understand that the ocean is really really big. So understanding who's there, what are the hazards, what do I need to look out for? Just that fundamental safety of passage and safety of economic transition is critical. But then on top of that is the, what do we do about it if there's a problem? What if somebody has an issue? And what is the intent? Is there a ship coming across that says they're delivering goods, but maybe they're not? Maybe they're delivering bad things for, you know, a, for a nefarious reason. How do you determine that? And space domain awareness, space situation awareness is that under underpinning of what's going on and what do we have to deal with? So how is that actually accomplished? How do we know what's going on up there? And, and why is that hard? Why is it hard to figure out intention? It's hard. But, well, let's start with the easy, obvious, in-your-face physical problem. Space is really big. <laughs> So, you know, you can use the ocean example to where it's like, okay, the ocean's also really big. And it, I think if you ask any mariner or a sailor, if we really under, and scientists too, like, do we really understand what's going on in the ocean? You're going to get the answer of no. And all of the factors that are in play on the ocean, wind, currents, change, we, we don't have a perfect picture of what's going on in the oceans. And space is just physically absolutely huge. It's, and it's harsh. It's hard to deal with. You clearly can't instrument or be all, all everywhere all the time. It's just too big. And especially in today's world where we're not just talking about low Earth orbit here to the space station or even geo here at our typical concepts. We really are looking at all the way from the surface of the Earth out to the moon and beyond and Mars. So it's just it's physically vast. It's also hard to to gauge intent simply because it's like space is is very different than all of our other domains in which we operate because it is it is very just kind of fundamentally gray that 
if I put a communication satellite up there, sure, I'm going to have direct TV and YouTube bandwidth so you can get your cat videos. Cat videos are very important. But then also it's that's where our economic transactions will flow through. That's where diplomatic communications will flow through and military communications will flow through. So it's just inherently a lot more gray than a lot of the other domains to begin with. So that makes it even more complicated in terms of norms of behavior and like red lines of if you do this, that triggers this response. It's very different in space than it is in any of the other domains since uh, like another example is movements. Satellites have to maneuver for their own safety, but I can also maneuver to get out of your way or to purposely get in your way. It's the same thing, but a very different intent. So coming back to how this all plays out, what, what role does space power play in U.S. power and influence? Uh, space power across all of the elements. I still like to use dime as an easy way to, to illustrate it. We already talked about the ultimate high ground and how the element of strategic surprise. And so from the military aspect, you've got kind of the reconnaissance elements, strategic surprise, and the tactical elements in terms of safety of our war fighters that are deployed and, and need information on the front lines to be uh, effective and safe. So I think that's an easy one to get your head around. And then kind of the far far counter example to that that is equally important is in, in the diplomatic side. Stephen Hawking has a, has a good quote from when he uh, christened Virgin Galactic Spaceship Unity that countries have a way of cooperating in space far different than on Earth. And that can really also that can be seen all the way back in the the Soyuz Apollo program. So shortly after the moon landings, we had uh, Soviet and American spaceships docking in space. We've always had partnerships with the International Space Station. So it gives rise to lines of communication and diplomacy that just don't exist anywhere else. Science is also something that is borderless, right? So the great observatories, things where a government really needs to play a role in terms of either it's radio telescopes or something like the Hubble or Chandra, these great observatories create such breadth and depth of data that can link the scientific community around the world together in ways that are truly unique and can only be done through these sorts of amazing platforms. And then the economic we've already talked about. So right now it's about really economics using space as part of their infrastructure. But quickly, I think we're going to see this turn in that it's going to be economics that are benefiting from space or they're using space to create their value. So it really is through every element of, of, of dime space is is not just there, but it's a tool that should be thought about and can be leveraged to change and influence that whole political, the whole geopolitical picture. Are you excited that the administration has decided to keep the National Space Council? I am. And I think, you know, a great part of why is because a lot of these issues that we're talking about really haven't been dealt with before at this kind of rate of change and, and scale. So we don't have normal policy canned on the shelf and ready to go. And the only place for like commerce and the intelligence community and the DOD to come together at that level 
to go through this interagency process is at the cabinet secretary level. So to create something at at that level where we can we can tackle these interagency issues at the, where all the departments come together, which is at the cabinet level and say, OK, this is really going to be a space focused event and and tackle these issues, I think is, is just it's great. It, it's very much a bipartisan topic and problem and area of interest. So I'm thrilled to see the Space Council continue. So it, I saw that uh, Chirag has been named to be the secretary, and I've heard that the UAB will be picking up its meetings. Yes, this is so exciting. So congrats to Chirag and just well-earned, well-deserved. He's been um, just such a great uh, proponent and, and advocate for getting through the the hurt the policy hurdles and the wickets that that kind of the machine needs to go through to make sure that everyone's thought through these issues and tee up issues that maybe haven't been thought through or tackled before. So I'm thrilled to have him on board. So let's it's time to go to work. <laughs> Absolutely. And so let, let's talk about that work from your perspective. Where do you want to take American space? Paint, paint me an image of our future. Uh, an image of our future. So, you know, I really look at things kind of in the near term because that's where the barriers that I see need to be addressed with a true sense of urgency. But that is informed by the vision that I see in the longer term, where just kind of the same way that now we can all walk around with iPads and cell phones and not even think about it. um, I envision a future of space where there are launches happening all over the world every day to all the orbital regimes. And it's just like airplanes taking off from airports. Um, Unless you're a total airplane nerd, you're not going to stop and go, oh, that's a Uh, whatever, that's a 737 or that's a 747. It's just going to be another airplane taking off, taking stuff wherever it's going. So just unbelievable access to space to all regimes being both Leo Geo, Cislunar and and beyond. Big exploration missions won't feel like it's a once a, a, a couple year thing. They'll be a lot more regular. Continued presence on the moon. And uh, hopefully present, you know, or at least people going to Mars at some point here in the near Earth future. And then the other element is real increased access to stuff and people up and down through space very regularly. So whether it's manufacturing that's in space or dealing or or being assisted with stuff in space, goods being moved through space, and then people, uh, a lot more openness of people whether it be suborbital, orbital, space station visits. July was an exciting month watching both Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin fly customers, like truly commercial customers. That should be an everyday occurrence. And how do we just make, just like, again, going to an airport and getting on an airplane. It should just be part of our life that then opens up all these modes of transportation and logistics that enables just a whole, I, I don't even know what that could do to the economy. Like if we could just all move and and all of our goods can be delivered and transported that easily and we can manufacture and bring things back from new resources. I mean, that's just, I have no idea what it'll do. It'll be like all of these fun sci-fi movies, but even better, I think. <laughs> 
So, you know, I, I get a lot of skepticism when I talk about the possibility of in-space manufacture or resources or any kind of meaningful logistics or, you know, people who aren't government paid astronauts. Do you really think we'll see this in our lifetime? I mean, you've got a much bigger picture than most people do. I sure hope so. Right. And so I think in terms of of non-professional astronauts becoming kind of a, a more routine occurrence in space. I think that'll definitely happen in our lifetime. You know, what it's not, hasn't been that long ago when we would have said the same thing about climbing Everest or Choi Yu, right. Or Denali. And now it's like, Hey, all right. You know, I can, I can go to national geographic or REI and I, there's a lot of training to do. Um, but you can, you can take a shot at something like that. So if hundreds of people a year can go make an attempt at Everest, I think hundreds of people a year should be able to, to experience space. It's, it's the same level of, of adventure. Different things appeal to different people. Some people like to fly, some people like to scuba dive, but there's that sense of adventure that's kind of there in all of us. So I think the people element will definitely happen in our lifetime. Manufacturing in space, uh, bringing things back from space, I sure hope so. I think if that doesn't happen in our lifetime, we've we messed something up. Are these themes discussed on the users advisory group? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. They are because and that's where the, the users advisory group to inform the, 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 the space council sets the users advisory groups priorities. So we're still very much kind of in a, in a set of transition right now to let the, the new administration kind of reevaluate those. But for the last few years, uh, the user's advisory group per kind of the goal is to say, okay, if we want to go back to the moon with, with an intent to stay, not just have it be a stunt, uh, not that Apollo wasn't a stunt, but it wasn't a sustained presence. What are some of the key choices that we really need to make and think about now? Some of the very underlying fundamental things that we're trying to look at with a longer term view within the user's advisory group are, are what are some of the key things that regardless of priority, we know need to be addressed like workforce. We need people. We need we need people that are STEM educated as well as business professionals and accountants and lawyers and artists to want to be part of this uh, ecosystem. So we know that that is a huge area of concern. All things national security in terms of while we're trying to increase the pace of change, so are a lot of other people and a lot of other countries and a lot of other agendas. So is there a priority tweak or suggestions to make sure that we're keeping our eye on the ball strategically that maybe isn't a priority today, but we need to make sure isn't left off the table when we're really looking for enabling that architecture of the future. So that's where it's been an absolute honor to be part of the UAG to at least tee up some of these issues and make sure that a light stays on them, even if it's not an issue that's immediate of today. We know we need to keep a light on these issues and 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 increase its level of presence so the Space Council principles can address it when they're able. Now, you recently were both a speaker and a participant at the State of the Space Industrial Base 2021. Could you talk a bit? What is that event and why might it be important? Sure. So that's a, wow, it's a great event. It's my second year participating in it. And this is a really interesting kind of cross-section of the space community that comes together. It's hosted by New Space New Mexico, AFRL, and the Defense Innovation Unit. 
to say, okay, snap the chalk line. It we did in July of the year. What's what's going on? What is the current state of the space industrial base, both good and bad? What has changed since the last year? Again, both good and bad. What are inflection points? Either inflection points that are happening, or we could see happening, or inflection points that we could control and influence to happen that can help enable these architectures and dreams of the future come to fruition. And also warning signs. Like if we see this inflection point playing out in a way that maybe isn't advantageous to us, it's a call to action to say, hey, heads up, maybe this isn't playing out the way we intended and we need to revector. It's a multidisciplinary group. We've got engineers, we've got launch experts, we've got economists, policy wonks. And, and the intent is that this, this group doesn't just sit and admire the problem and how we're all so insightful at pointing out the problem, <laughs> but it's about, okay, no kidding. Let's codify this into some real actions and some real calls to action, both near medium and long-term that can be addressed, but kind of across the gamut, whether it's by uh, the national security community, the civil community, the policymakers and us on the industrial side, what are the gaps? What do we need to do? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a meaty few days. So those of us that are involved to help support it, it's like, Oh, I was, I was spent. <laughs> At the end, and yes, looking forward so to the report. <laughs> three or four days, what, what did you learn? Oh, gosh, what did I learn? This year was really interesting because last year, twenty July of 2020, appropriately so, the conversation was really COVID-centric, right? Getting our head around the black swan event that had succumbed the world. What, what does that mean? What's happening? How are we? What do we need to do? Um, it was very encompassed on that of like, okay, making sure that we don't lose sight of, of what does the space economy need to do? What is What does the government need to do to make sure we don't lose this sector? So this year was really interesting that so much of the industry weathered the COVID storm very, very well. Investment into commercial space is still totally cruising. Amazing things are happening. It's just great. But a couple of things that I thought were interesting in terms of, of alignment of that strategy, both between the commercial, national security and civil sector, there's good momentum happening, but it's not necessarily grabbing the public and not necessarily in a way that that I think gets to the fundamental economic imperative of the issue. When And we're kind of looking at it a little myopically, again, just in terms of we're doing this U.S. centrically and maybe we're okay. So I think there's a little bit of international uh, element where we're a, we we're a little weaker than maybe we appreciate. And so that kind of came up in terms of what wasn't necessarily a big theme. And then another theme are where, where did we identify problems last year that are still problems? Are we all, is there a mission that we have all gravitated to, to say, this is going to happen? Are we appreciating the pressure of the threats that are out there with enough um, imperative to act. So I think there's still, there were some things we talked about a year ago that we talked about again this year. So to me, that's a big signal that, that there's still some key things missing. Now you had sort of mentioned threats and you mentioned competitors. So is U.S. space primacy in jeopardy? And if so, from whom? Right. And, you know, I like the Fareed Zakaria. He had the title of one of his books was The Rise of the Rest. 
right? So it's um, the space industry here is is vibrant and cool and fun and amazing. And um, it's also hap- that's happening around the world too. So I think there's there's two things happening. One is the barrier to entry in a whole lot of, of sectors of space is dropping. Uh, access to space is increasing. The affordability and access to launch is increasing. The cost of building a satellite and getting some of this stuff up is 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 decreasing. So you can have all these areas and countries and institutions that have never been able to have a space program. They can have a space program now. So I think it's only not even a year old. There is now an African space agency, right? So there's a whole... There's, there's tons of countries that haven't participated in the space economy that are just about to. So that raises one, one big question mark in terms of who's going to collaborate with who, who partners with who, who helps each other gain that access into space and why. So um, who's the flag of choice for who we partner with? So that creates just a whole new layer of complexity. So that's one area of competition. And I think it's good competition because it's it's still shapeable competition. And then the other area is is you know the classic big players, the the China Russia, right? They have very robust space programs. There, China is fascinating to watch because wow, talk about accelerating the pace of change! It's incredible. I think it was in you know 2006 they had 32 satellites on orbit, some small number like that, you know, now it's, now it's hundreds and they now have given rise to a commercial sector that's starting to increase and become more vibrant and they're helping companies all over the world. Um, so their pace of change is, is absolutely mind boggling and it's very impressive. And we should look at that in both a motivational way as well as a possible call to action of, okay, (laughs) rather than studying a problem to death, um, maybe we should prototype some more, demo some more, test some more. Let's, Let's get going. The pace of change from their sector is absolutely mind boggling. So I uh, just a couple of days ago got to hear an ISU presentation by CNSA that outlined what they're doing with the one Belt and Road. And one of the things I thought they did very well that might interest the current administration is they had mapped all the UN development goals onto what they were doing in space, uh, which of course includes lots of things like climate and equity and gender equity and planning and resource planning and, you know, uh, you know, wealth and poverty and all these things. And, you know, they were able to show exactly how their program was going. And of course, they were very targeted, their one belt, one road, the developing world. But I guess, you know, just to ask you know, bring it back to the earlier questions on strategy, you know, I can't take it for granted that my audience uh, would understand why this is important. So why should America care who the developing world chooses to collaborate with in space and and what's the big deal if China has a vibrant commercial sector and a great space program? Isn't that just something that we should all cheer for or or is there a downside? I think, you know, uh, citizens of the world, we should obviously cheer for it, right? I mean, uh, a vibrant space economy is, is good for us all, but then the area of concern is who creates the standards, who creates the norms that then we all abide by. And, and um, an example is the dollar, right? So if we're all using the dollar, 
as, as our basis, um, that's great for us. But what if somebody made a choice that it was another currency hundred, a hundred years ago, right? Or how do we negotiate contracts? We just kind of assume that how we have been comfortable doing business and that, Hey, if I sign up to use a cloud service and I sign the privacy rights that, you know, that means you're not going to go through and pilfer all my data. We assume that that you're going to abide by this contract and and follow suit. If there's norms of behavior that aren't like that, um, that has ramifications. So I think it's easy for us to get comfortable that how we are used to doing business will just continue. But the truth of the matter is, if there's areas where we've never had to negotiate what is the basis, what is normal, those assumptions aren't valid. And that, I think, when I really think about it, it's like, that's kind of scary <laughs> of, in terms of, of levels of control, in terms of our, our business behaviors, which is kind of what are your ethical norms associated with a business deal? Are we, are we sure we're all speaking the same language? So you had mentioned that the cost of access, the cost to build satellites had dropped. So what are we talking? Is this like a five or 10% drop or just how, how significant is this? Oh boy. Um, I like how you put it in some of your earlier remarks too, in terms of the uh, starship singularity that is about to come. <laughs> uh, since, I mean, it's, we're talking an order of magnitude now, a quickly approaching two orders of magnitude. By the way, what, what does that mean to fuzzy majors? Oh, when you say an majors. order of magnitude, okay. what, what, what does that mean? So what, what were we doing before? So space shuttle was like $20,000 a pound. And, you know, now we've, we've more than cut that in half. We're between five Five thousand and ten thousand dollars a pound to get things into space, and SpaceX is going to make this what about a hundred dollars a pound. So for the same price that I can order something from Amazon, close in today's world, we can put something in space. That's coming, and that I, breaks my brain. <laughs> in terms of okay, if we can open up the aperture to low earth orbit and then beyond. And it's not just the price point of, of launch, it's also just the access, the pace. If I have my whole business plan that hinges upon, I have to launch this satellite and start showing revenue before the end of the year. Launch opportunities used to be a lot more sparse. You may or may not make that. If, um, if the launch vehicle has a problem and they slip, you miss your window, that's changing too. So. If I say I need to get this up by the end of the year, you're going to have ample opportunity to get it up by the end of the year. So you have a lot more certainty in your business plan and what you need to deliver, which is a very different mindset than we've had the luxury of dealing with in space before. And this was something that you had specifically gone after when you were at Vox Space, right? Was this disruptive access on demand? Right, right, exactly. To where it really is, you know, it, it's almost scheduled. Um, Tuesday, we're going here. Thursday, we're going there. And easily flow between manifests, right? Or cross manifest. We're not there yet. But at the same time, I think the technology basis is starting to become mature enough that that's in the realm of the possible. Hopefully within the next couple of years, if not sooner, 
right? So again, it, the airline analogy I like for this, because if I'm going to go, go to New York today, I, I can go to New York today. I may have to pay a little more for it, or I could go to New York in a couple of weeks and pay a little less for it. But then also if I buy my ticket to go to New York and something changes, it's pretty darn easy for me to change my plan and still get on a plane and go. And it's not a huge ripple through my life or United Airlines life. <laughs> That's a pretty accommodatable change. They don't have to go reanalyze the weight and balance and the design of the airplane seats because I've changed a flight. So how do we make it that seamless for people to move around and then get things up and down through space? So to think about where we were 100 years ago from aviation to now, that's kind of eye-watering. And I think access to space, both in terms of accessibility, schedulability, flexibility, and affordability, we're right on the cusp of that. Well, that's a pretty compelling vision. You know, is that just something that we should laissez-faire let happen? Or do you see some proactive role for the government and, and the Space Force in particular? Oh, great question. And, you know, I think there's definitely a proactive role in for the government here because a couple ways. First is in kind of the prime the pump way of there's a lot of people excited about this and they want to do it and they want to demonstrate it and see if their ideas work or this technology shakes out. Prime the pump, accelerate that, help allow some of these companies that maybe are close, but can't quite get over the finish line in terms of whether it be financial or regulatory. It's like, let's experiment and see what works. So I think there's a prime the pump element just to help experiment and demo a lot more. Just buy some of these commercial goods to see what works and what fills your vision. And then the other other element is in the regulatory side. And the FAA, I think, has been a great example of this over the last couple of years of really seeing, whoa, the commercial space launch industry is really changing. They're increasing their cadence. How do we make launch licensing easier? and more streamlined. And let's have this be a discussion with industry of what do they need. And they also understand that when they've drafted policy, maybe it's not perfect the first time. So let's go change it. So I think there's definitely regulatory ways. And this is tough because this is a way, an area where the, the standards could get we could get way behind of where the technology is. And that becomes even harder when you really look at, okay, space is global. Everyone's doing it and everyone's going to participate and have a role. So what do you, what does the U.S. government want to do and, and how can we leverage our allies and partners to make this a, a quicker, more international discussion too? Otherwise, we could still be in kind of a rulemaking process and the rest of the world could just decide on a, on a standard and go. Yeah, this seems like it's a very competitive uh, industry, even though the United States seems to have a lead in launch. It's very clear that others are perhaps even directly copying the designs. You know, you you mentioned, you know, the FAA, and my understanding is that what they've had to deal with is not minor, that we've gone from a from an incredibly, you know, sort of every once in a great while launch to really, really regular launches. You may, you may have actual figures. Um, but the other thing, and I, I suspect you're probably sensitive to this, is George Neal pointed out to me that the that airport improvement funds 
are not allocated. You, you can't allocate them for spaceport improvements. So it seems as if there's like a, a missing link there in terms of trying to rapidly improve the infrastructure that would support uh, the kind of expansion you envision. Good point and, and a great example. And, you know, that's a tough one, right? Because you're, I think your airport improvement fund examples is a spot on one that, okay, there's, there's a whole element of infrastructure availability that could help the space industry with this with this kind of maturation. And that's one thing I know kind of across the community, there's been a large push to say, hey, just like roads, space should be deemed critical infrastructure to help open up that kind of discussion. So I think that's a, an example where we need to push for action. And then the other thing too is, Again, using the airport example, we need to also really think about, okay, quickly, how do we make that initial investment make a lot of sense, right? Because you're not going to put airports or significant, huge class B airports at every little place that wants one. You really need to think about it in terms of, okay, where is your population center? What do the airlines want to do? What infrastructure lays around the airport for that to make sense to be the next class B airport? It has to include the industry flying in and out of the airport, the hotels around the airport, the convention centers, the rental cars, as well as as the state and local and federal government as to does that make sense? We need to have that same discussion on not just a spaceport, but just kind of that space access perspective. It's a fun discussion to have. But it I it think is. We, yeah, we need to have and, more of it. And, you know, uh, you know, thinking back to your analogy to aviation, you know, there was a time, you know, when uh, I believe it was the Doolittle Report where, you know, we thought very consciously about where our airports needed to be and where, you know, when we were redeveloping under the Marshall Plan Europe, where, you know, it's your uh, airports needed to be, and yep. the the global uh, global airlines still reflect the shape that was decided, you know, in the in the post World War II era, along with the International Civil Aviation Organization that sort of set up the the free overflight all around mm-hmm. the world for uh, for aviation. Exactly, and exactly right. So we need to have those sorts of strategic, economic, and worldwide discussions of the exact same, but talking about things happening 200 and 200 miles up. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wonder, uh, you had mentioned the rise of the rest and sort of this democratization that comes with this lower access, but you, you must have noticed that there was uh, quite a bit of negative press of people trying to paint, you know, this as being an exclusive domain of the billionaires, you know, taking, uh, you know, roller coaster and, and joy rides and not really appreciating, you know, how this interacts with the industrial base and with opening access and with the, the larger goals of addressing climate and all that. So I, I wonder if you might just provide some perspective on like, what is the big picture when we see billionaires putting people into suborbital space? I think it's, you know, first, wow, I'm just so thrilled that that both Blue and Virgin Galactic had very successful, safe flights and just awesome. And yeah, I, I certainly get that element of what's the point, but the flip side of it is, okay, um, both of them created not just amazing companies that employ a whole bunch of people that are very passionate about building these vehicles and creating these systems. And these two systems are both kind of unique in that 
they are intended to be suborbital. It really is about the experience flying into space, both in terms of, hey, a little bit of fun astronaut training, as well as microgravity, some G-forces, and the view. And to be able to see the Earth um, as it is from above is you know, clearly, I mean, it's it's a transformative experience for people. So opening that access and allow these systems can hopefully be all over the world in the future to where people can do this everywhere, which is kind of cool to think about. So on the, I get the criticism on one hand of what good is this when we have a bunch of problems here on Earth that require funding. But the flip side is no different. We talked about climbing Everest before too, right? It's what good is it if you spend your summer going to climb Everest? But the thing is, it's like, okay, I become aware of the fragileness of the Himalayans, the economic workforce of the Nepalese all there. And it's just incredible. And I have to get there and I have to go to a whole bunch of outfitters and REI to get ready for it. And you come home with an awareness of, oh, wow, that changed me as a human. And what are my values? What do I want to do? And how can I improve the world and life around me? from from that experience. So experiential things certainly have profound impact. Then not to mention the, hey, now we're just talking about these couple of billionaires in, in suborbital space, but inspiration for on a dragon is just about to fly and fly for non-professional astronauts orbitally. Whoa. <laughs> so it really is about, we're going to increase the human presence in space and this sub, these suborbital hops were, were just the starting point. And orbital is next. Space station is next. The moon, Mars. It's human presence in space is just going to increase. And that, I think, is just a little signal from what their flights represent. Now, you had mentioned space as critical infrastructure. And of course, that presumes that we think about infrastructure, space as infrastructure to begin with. We'd sort of talked about spaceports, but a lot of the, the discussion in our community centers on infrastructure in space. I wonder, you know, I, I don't think that space was a big part of this infrastructure bill or really that people are thinking about it. We certainly are not financing space uh, as infrastructure. So could you talk a little bit about what it means to see space as infrastructure and what could be some of the, you know, what would that mean in policy or legislation or, or finance? So I think kind of an analogy to think about it of what does it mean to call space infrastructure is to think more about like um, our country's communications backbones, right? So between fiber optic cables that are running around um, the country and cell phone towers that are all over the country, those are the sorts of elements that it's like, hey, we all need communications for everything, for business, data, um, economics, emergencies, just that's, you need data and communications to be able to flow. And so we create that, we call that, that's all kind of deemed part of our infrastructure, right? So we need to kind of think of space as that same way. It's the, the space itself is that, that medium to be able to say, we're going to move things, data, bits, information around the world, uh, uninhibited, seamlessly and safely. And then also um, uh, this is what kind of gives rise to say, okay, we're going to have something like a GPS 
and a timing signal that works everywhere for all people for whatever they need. Right. So it's, it's that kind of, it's not the, the whole like fiber optic cable analogy isn't necessarily sexy. It's not smoke and fire and flames of a rocket, but, um, if we didn't have fiber optic cables linking the continents, right? So then it's like, oh my goodness, that's how our stock markets talk to each other. That's how banking transactions are done. That's how most of our, a lot of our, our phone calls are routed at the speed of light through undersea cables, right? So it's, it's that same level of importance that is eventually going to be going through space already. So that's the difference in turn in the, um, economic imperative with it is kind of just like your airport example. Hey, if we, if we acknowledge space is part of that critical infrastructure that makes the country go, it opens up all of those avenues in terms of this is important. Let's make sure that we're the ones we do have a say in what are the standards? What are the protocols? How, how will we react if there's a threat or a problem? It changes that discussion and elevates space to be just like our huge interstate highway network and our ports and, and things like that. So uh, those are the things that make the economy go in every facet. And um, again, then makes it part of just the fabric of society of that everyone, we all know we need it. We just might not think about it every day. So let's, let's put space back in, let's put space into that category, just like those other key fundamental systems. Well, it certainly seems that that point of view uh, has been adopted by uh, at least one of our competitors. So China, it seems, has named space as, as one of their new infrastructures, and they do seem to be very assertively pushing for their Beidou alternative to GPS to be the standard across their their belt and road. And of course, that as they competed well in 5G will you know, de- determine uh, you know, the underlying infrastructure of, of the rest of the world. So that's a, it's a good segue into sort of how do you assess the relative strength of the United States compared to its competitors in space? Whoa, that could be its own podcast. <laughs> uh, gosh, I think it's where I think the U.S. is, man, one thing that is just awesome is our level of innovation, I don't think I'm getting this number exactly right, but it's close. So I think through last year, SpaceX had the same number of launches that China did, right? Just one company matched China. So that's just, and SpaceX is a, is a, commercial private entity. It's like, wow. So what we're able to do from our entrepreneurial and innovation side is truly amazing. And I think that is an area where I think hands down, uh, we still have a, a tremendous advantage. I think the other element, but that's part that can be fragile too, which is the whole purpose of, of GXO in terms of, okay, this is a tremendous advantage. We have so many people that want to create companies and want to tackle these hard problems and venture capitalists and investors that want to help. How can we help make sure that those innovations and priorities help further our our whole of government strategic goodness, if you will? So I think that's an area where it's like, wow, it's an amazing, our entrepreneurial and innovation pace, spirit, infrastructure is, is just incredible. Where I do 
see, wow, I think the rise of the rest argument kind of worries me in terms of, you know, not not with China, but just, again, with the whole rest of the world, we have to collaborate. And I think there's a lot of ways where we get so centric on that. If it's not ours, if it's if we didn't build it, own it and touch it, we, we don't trust it. And so we need to open that aperture in terms of what are mission sets and especially when you're just moving data through things in space, what are mission sets where we, we are open to trusting our partners and our allies to really divide and conquer. If we're going to put a GPS equivalent system around the moon, why do we have to do that on our own? Let's, let's do that in partnership and let's really, really do it in partnership with each other. So I think that's an area where um, we need to we need to improve our own kind of investment priorities and policy to say, hey, let's let's really leverage our allies, not with duplicative technologies, but with no kidding divestment of technologies. We are not going to do X because an ally will and we trust them and we leverage it. How do you uh, articulate a policy that both takes care of your foreign policy equities of involving allies and their industrial base, and at the same time is looking out for your own competitiveness in a, in a very international sphere in your own you know, companies? Is there, is there a rule set you would offer about when and how you make those those trade-offs because you'll you'll either have a a loser in terms of your your foreign policy and your partners or you'll likely have a a domestic loser so how do you decide which parts of of that space infrastructure you want to to own and which part you want uh to to encourage and offer your allies to be a part of great you know it's I don't think there's a I don't have a good answer to that one, because no doubt to really do that in a meaningful way, you're going to have to make some hard decisions about what you're not going to do. So I think the real crux of that question is what's the opportunity cost if you don't do that? So if we if we do not carve out something to say, hey, our allies and partners are going to do X contribute this part of the mission. And it's a technology that they really want to get involved in. Um, they've got kind of an ecosystem that's already there. If we don't lend them that opportunity, somebody else likely will. Scott Pace, who was the the recent previous executive secretary of the Space Council, he talked about it as being the flag of choice. So how can we open our aperture in what is that investment and policy decision so we can be the flag of choice for somebody? But I think it's uh, no doubt we're going to have to make a decision there that at some point that probably we aren't in love with. But what's the alternative? That's a hard problem. So you mentioned uh, Dr. Scott Pace and, you know, the, the last National Space Council just had an incredible agenda, you know, I think eight space policy directives, a couple EOs, you know, they had, you know, a report, they had a new vision, they have a new national space policy, but that hardly exhausts the potential agenda. So, you know, we have, we have a brand new secretary, we have a brand new vice president, a brand new space council. In your opinion, what is the space agenda worthy of our nation? 
Oh boy. I'm going to start with the easy part to that answer <laughs> in where there's a couple of areas of, of overlap between um, the administration's priorities. And again, it, it like STEM and workforce development is definitely one. Increasing access to space is another. And Vice President Harris is openly talking about monitoring for climate change as a key priority. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of the of the access that you need to do those things that the previous administration's goals were, were posing. But I think, you know, as we've talked about in, in the state of the industrial base reports too, the big thing that's kind of lacking is what is that common vision that we all latch onto to say, okay, for the next five, 10, 15 years, this is the mission. This is the goal to kind of help loosely link the standards and strategy development, technology development for space. How do we help create that baseline infrastructure and logistics footprint that not only can let people go to the moon, but also creates that underlying infrastructure of how do we move things through space? How do we get things up and down? That enables communications and manufacturing people. What's that North Star vision that? we're going to latch onto in a bipartisan way that can live beyond an administration because space is hard, space is slow and being beholden to a major vector every two or four years is, is tough. Indeed. So, you know, what then does the United States have to do to accomplish this, this vision you have for it? You know, I think this is one where, Kind of as we've talked about the establishing space as a critical infrastructure, which opens the aperture for how do we think about it and budget for it is, is the, a near-term starting point. And then the longer-term st- thing is to think about, hey, we're going to have an economy that operates from here to the moon and then eventually beyond. Let's lead that. Let's lead in the development of that, both in terms of the being the country that you want to do business with, as well as seeding the technology base that will make that physically possible. Because that's a vision where whether it's just to put people on the moon or to say we're going to mine or we're going to manufacture, all of those things need that. And so I think those are that's the 10 year roadmap of, of stuff where and I think it's there's a lot of deep tech and fun, hard technical problems there as well as regulatory and policy problems there that I hope we can we can lead the way in terms of the vision and getting that off and running. Well, that certainly uh, would be a, a great step forward. Um, you know, I thought the last administration at least got some of it right in their new vision for space exploration and development. First time they had ever articulated in a White House document the word development versus just exploration. Right. First time there was a mention of settlement and and resources. And I'd, I'd like to see at least continuity of those big ideas and the ones you've said in, in a re-released you know, something like that. But you you talk about 10 years, and I just want to poke you a little bit because, of course, our competitor, China, their their timeline goes out to 2050, mm. a good 30 years. And, you know, the, it, when you talk about in the long term, an economy that operates from here to the moon, they also talk about that. And their, their articulated goal is $10 trillion a year by 2050, which I would just point out, that's like, three times the economic output of, of India with a $3 billion 
three trillion dollar a year uh, economy. So that that's a bit of scale more than just a you know five or six person. Uh, moon science station. <laughs> right. No kidding. And, you know, it, that is one thing where, you know, China is incredible about, and we shouldn't be, and we aren't surprised by this, right? It's like they write down their plan and they reevaluate it ever so often. And, but it's, it's still the same plan, um, right? It's still that same strategic end state. And, you know, I think that is one where we don't do such a great job of that, in a credible way here. We do have some really good reports and and ideas in terms of, okay, what does the space economy look like in 2030, 40, 60, but how credible is that? And I guess where I get hung up on it is if we don't make some of those key decisions in these next five years, we don't get to write that roadmap, right? So that's where... I, 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 all those visions of what does 2050 look like? It's like, okay, I could paint a picture, but if we, if we don't do something more substantive and bold now, we don't get to write that roadmap. So let's, let's talk about substantive and bold in terms of like rubber meets the road. Are, are there specific space policies or executive orders that you think you know, like what would be titles of space policy directives or executive orders that you could imagine, uh, you know, coming out in the next three years? How about whatever the subtitle would be? Because <laughs> the pol- the titles always have some really flashy, fun title. I think one one would be, okay, we've talked a lot about it here, but space critical infrastructure, boom. So put a stamp on it, call that one done. I think another one is, is, I think this one's low hanging fruit is we need to either create a CFO or a office of chief economist within the Department of Defense to help integrate economic decisions with the rest of the government. So commerce and treasury have a lot of say and a lot of weight in terms of what happens in space in the future. Are we and we need to make when we're making big decisions, we need to evaluate the economic pros and cons and benefit of that from that national security point of view too. So I think a, a piece of low-hanging fruit is, is the DOD needs to think about the dollars and cents, not just in terms of balancing their own books, but in terms of the economic impact and opportunity to the country. So that's what just to pause there while you think of your next sure. that's a huge change. I mean, we we definitely see some folks at the state of the space industrial base that, that have that viewpoint. But, you know, historically, this has been an externality that people would care about the industrial base, that it was directly supporting the systems that they were buying. But it's not like they gave thought like the early air power theorists or the early sea power theorists to like, how do I grow a seafaring nation or how do I grow an airfaring nation and get a bunch of mechanics and everything. So this is, this is a distinct uh, vision you're putting forward. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's different. And I think another, another executive order that would be fun. I think, you know, on the national security side, there really is, more about the dual use element that needs to be exploited. And this is a really near term thing. If I was uh, if I was sitting on the Space Council, this would be one that would come up in the next year. We have got to lower the barriers of entry um, and levels of acceptance for our commercial innovative entrepreneurial ecosystem to be able to 
plug their systems into the classic U.S. government's receptacles, <laughs> right? How do we help the Space Force, the Air Force, and NASA accept what these commercial capabilities are really mainly on the DOD side? And how, because we need that in terms of, of our deterrence posture, how do we counter and, and really make our systems and our missions resilient across the globe. Um, I think this is this is one where that would be an executive order in the next year for me of how do we help improve how these companies can innovate and deliver their capabilities and the DOD will operationally accept them. They won't just be cute demos. Um, they won't just be a proof of concept, but it'll be an actual meaningful part of a program of record. There's a lot of procurement nuance in there that and a lot of innovation program nuance in there that that needs a lot of luck. Indeed. And I think earlier you had mentioned uh, STEM. Right. Yep. So it, that's that's one thing where near me, medium and long term, we need people. We need people. We put out um, China puts out more engineering graduates each year than the United States does just college graduates. Wow. Right. So it's just it's a it's a huge number. And our our economy is changing. It's not just about just space. It's it's space, it's airplanes, it's manufacturing, it's commercialization, it's software, it's electrical engineering. I mean, just it's a very high tech world and we can't just all be users of it. We need to be able to create the materials, write the code, come up with the, the security architectures and there's so much work to be done and many, many more systems to be built. So whether it's a STEM workforce, ROTC-like construct of, you know, a way to help you get through college because you're going to then get a job into the, in a, this sort of sector. There's a lot of programs and great, great ideas out there. Um, one thing that's been great on the, the users advisory group is Eileen Collins and her education and outreach committee. They've received briefings from, you mentioned ISU, ISU, uh, the Challenger Center, Space Camp, the Space Foundation, um, some targeted universities that have really interesting, successful programs. There's so many facets to this problem because you can focus on K through 12, college, graduate, domestic, international. I mean, there's kind of my attitude is there's no wrong answer other than not supporting one of these programs. <laughs> we all Indeed. live in slightly different geographic or economic circumstances, but we all need to inspire these people and these kids to get into these career fields. So there's so a for, oh, so I'm tough. guessing that for at least one meeting you'd have to have the Department of Education represented to discuss it with the National Space Council. Yeah, and that's actually one one thing that uh, Eileen's group had put forward is hey, let's consider adding the Secretary of Education to be a member. This is you know let's let's think about that. So yeah, I think it, a meeting at the least and making them a member um, should probably be be a serious consideration. Any other innovative ideas that your your group might have discussed that would be food for a uh, for an executive order? I think one that's been fun that has keeps coming up too is is uh, as a way to kind of kickstart the logistics and the strategy is a strategic propellant reserve in slash for space. 
right? So the country has their strategic petroleum reserve. What's the analogy for space? And because that could be useful both in terms of access, maneuver, as well as um, kind of being one of those Kickstarter sorts of concepts for as we're moving the space economy truly into space, the hardest part is getting into space. So how can we disassociate that problem from the whole rest of the mission? How do we, and what does that look like? I don't know, but that would require some real thinking in terms of where do you put it? How disaggregated is it? How do you manage it? But to say, hey, we're going to free up maneuver so you can just get things into space, have things start to be assembled in space, and then they can move around further away is kind of really life-changing. So I think that's one where I think there's some serious, that would be a very bold executive order. I agree. And very exciting too. I, I, I think I'd seen some, some earlier thinking you know, from the user's advisory group about propellant uh, depot and the idea of having a strategic propellant reserve, maybe one day even transitioning to a strategic minerals reserve, really does encourage suppliers to develop that offer supply chain or that earth independent supply chain that could break open the whole economy. Right. Um, and it, you know, conceivably, you know, the government could be purchasing that just like in a, you know, just like any commodity on some commodity exchange. So that's, that's a, it's a very provocative idea. Right. And I think is policy interest. It's interesting from a policy perspective as well as a technical perspective. Right. So I think that would, that would spurn a lot of action, which could be really exciting, both in terms of creating it, developing it, moving it around and then using it. So moving from the administration to Congress, are there are there innovations you think that would require legislation? Oh, heavens. Devil's in the details always. So I'm sure the answer there is yes. <laughs> and I think no doubt that in some of these innovation areas, there is definitely some congressional push support needed. And because it, it does boil down to there's a lot of nuance in the barriers of procurement rules that the DOD have to abide by. What are the efficacy of some of these regulations like the FAR, et cetera? And, you know, where can we make exceptions to things? And and I know you can always make exceptions to rules, but I think there's there's a case to be made here that we need to really think about big exceptions. So I think there's near term, that's the one that jumps out at me in terms of, yeah, there's there's a congressional need here. But I think also Congress is up for it, right? So just in looking at the uh, 22 budget, the Hack D put out a, a report basically saying, okay, Space Force, what's your planned plan? I'm, I'm obviously summarizing and paraphrasing, but basically what, where are your bold moves and what are, what are you going to do? What do you need to do to be able to make some bolder moves? So I think that, you know, the playing field is open for suggestions here, but that's one where, you know, Congress seems receptive to saying, Hey, we need to be able to move faster and um, move more flexibly, still be responsible, of course, but we need to be able to move faster and with, with kind of more autonomy at the lower level to in to accept these sorts of innovations faster. It does seem like Congress is uh, is pushing. I noticed in the last National Defense Authorization Act, they had 
tasked the White House to look at like a U.S.-China net assessment on many of the ideas you talked about, about mm -hmm. the cislunar, about uh, uh, lunar and asteroid mining, about in-space manufacturing, space solar power, nuclear propulsion, I think. Uh, and that's exciting. I, I want to come back, you know, and sort of finish up. You know, you had mentioned this North Star vision, and I think we're very lucky in that this is the first ever cross-partisan, you know, administration transition where the major elements of space policy, the National Space Council, Space Force, NASA's Artemis, the National Space Policy itself, all remained intact. What do you think it will take in terms of, you know, working the halls, you know, in order to get a vision that is supported on both sides of the aisle? and would survive yet another transition. And you bring up an optimistic point there in terms of some of those key foundational elements that are still in place, which really is great. So let's build on that momentum. Okay, so what are what would you want to say down the hallway? I think it's two things. The first is the, I'll start with the negatives. So we can end on the positive. We need to act. Have we, the threat is there. The threat is not slowing down. They're moving fast. Are we persuaded to act? Right. It's it's we know that there's we need to make a change in our thinking to move faster and be ready so we can eliminate strategic and tactical surprise. Are we persuaded to act? You know, even hearing NASA officials talk about, wow, what would the impact be if China is has a permanent presence on the moon before we do? What would that do to our own public perception? You know, are we persuaded to act? I think that's that's kind of a negative element of it. But then the, the the positive element of it to walk around the halls with is let's look at that economic prowess out there and that economic promise and growth. Don't we want to be the leader of that? I mean, holy cow, if we think our, our economy and, and this ecosystem is vibrant now, whoa, <laughs> yes. why would we not want to lead that? Let's lead it. Let's go. Just like the railroads and, you know, let's open up, let's open up the frontier and um, lead the way and open up that economic development. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that perspective of seeing space, not just as a realm of exploration, but of economic development. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't uh, have any other questions. Was there anything else you wanted to cover or bring out? Wow, this was wide ranging. So I think, you know, the only other thing I'll add is it's certainly a time of transition. And with, um, you know, Space Council's just starting to, to get ready uh, with, with Chirac in the seat. Space Force is just about to stand up the Space Systems Command, you know, so it's one where part of, I think we should all, we, we all have a role in the success of these organizations and, um, you know, let's, let's see what we can do to help them innovate faster and let's deliver some amazing capability. Absolutely. Mandy, thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.